Well, if you haven't yet, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 26. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 15 to 20 of this familiar story. But I want to give you the background first. They were flat out wrong, he was convinced. They were teaching that a man was God and that he had been raised back to life from the dead. It was ridiculous. It was blasphemous. It was actually heretical, and they had to be stopped at any cost, even by brute force if necessary, and it was proving to be necessary. This man was a religious fanatic. He was a fundamentalist. He was a killer who was convinced that he was on a mission for God. And the man I've just described is not a Muslim terrorist, as perhaps some of you thought. He was a Jew, lived in the first century. His name was Saul, and along with many other Jews of his time, he was so infuriated at the teachings that the Christians were giving, that Jesus was God and that he'd been raised from the dead. And Paul had devoted his life to wiping out this heretical sect from the face of the earth and did everything possible to do that. And then something remarkable happened. Just like that, Saul was changed. This man who was so convinced he was right that he was willing to kill people who disagreed with him, all of a sudden realized that for all of his life he had been completely wrong. And what happened to him? In short, he met Jesus. Now, in our story today, Paul is on trial in Jerusalem for creating a disturbance in the city, and he's making his defense before King Agrippa. And he describes in the passage that we read events that happened some 25 years earlier when he'd been on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians and put more of them in prison. And there on that road, a bright light appeared to him and his companions, and he fell on the floor on the road, and Jesus spoke to him. And this is what changed Saul. His defense essentially talks about this theme from darkness to light. And it's a story that's repeated three times. Acts 9 is when it happens. Acts 22, Paul in his defense before the Roman tribunal relates the same story. And now in Acts 26, for the third time, he's telling about his conversion. This is an important story that God wanted us to get. And the theme of his story is from darkness to light. In an incredible piece of irony, Saul, who thought he was walking in the light, has the true light of Jesus shine down on him, and he suddenly realizes, I've been walking in darkness my whole life. He's blinded. And then he's given a command that now he is to go and bring others from darkness to light, just like had happened with him. In this text, we're going to see three elements of the journey from darkness to light. Three elements in the journey from darkness to light. And the first element is the commissioner, verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, if you've thought very hard about our theme for REACH, you might have been a little disturbed by it. From darkness to light... A couple of weeks ago, my wife was at the doctor and was sharing with him some stories of Pastor John Varghese from Delhi, India, who was just with us a week or two ago. And she was describing how he had pulled together some Hindu converts and had started a church in Delhi. And her doctor 
made this very interesting observation that I suspect lurks in all of our hearts to some degree or another. He said, I wonder how people feel when they've been told that what they're thinking and what they've believed all their lives is wrong. I thought that was a very good question. If you're listening to this this morning and if you're not a Christian, maybe you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, maybe you're an atheist, you might think, who are these people to say that they're in the light and I'm in the darkness? I mean, we're just human beings. Any one of us could be wrong, couldn't we? And so we're taught in our culture not to be dogmatic about religious things because everybody's entitled to their own view and their own opinion. And you know what, that makes a lot of sense from a human perspective, except for one thing. And that one thing is that there is someone who does not have a perspective. There is someone who is called the truth, who literally knows it all. And it is this someone who appeared to Saul on the way to Damascus. Who commissioned him to go and bring people out of darkness into light? It was Jesus. Now, as the story goes, Saul didn't get a very clear look at Jesus because the light was so bright, it was like looking at the sun. He just heard the voice. But a few decades later, another apostle, John, was given a vision of Jesus as well. And I'd like for you just in a moment in your mind's eye to try to picture looking at this person. John says, I looked and his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Did you hear that? Seven suns he's holding in his right hand is this Jesus. And his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. And I don't know about you, but if I saw that individual, I would bow down at his feet and I wouldn't say why. I would say, Lord, what do you want me to do? The commissioner is not man. It is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, who is the firstborn of all creation, the one by whom and for whom all things have been made. Jesus, the one who's been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus, who the scripture says has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Jesus, the faithful and true witness, who holds in his hands the key to death and hell. Jesus, the one who shuts and no one can open, who opens and no one can shut. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb upon the throne, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is this Jesus who has appeared to Saul and commissions him to do his work. You see, missions is not our idea. It was this same Jesus who was declared in power by the Spirit of holiness to be the Son of God after he was raised from the dead who appeared to his disciples and said this to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. One of the most important words in the Great Commission is the therefore. We need to see who is commissioning us and it is this person, this God, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. 
Emissions is not a human endeavor. I mean, who would be foolish or arrogant enough to think that they had all the answers and they needed to set the whole world straight? Certainly not me. There is one and only one who knows the truth, and his name is Jesus. He knows more than E.F. Hutton. And so when he talks, we should listen. We may each have our own opinions, but when the sun speaks, discussion stops. He is the light of the world, and in his light, we see light. See, my friends, missions makes no sense until we first see the commissioner, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The second element in the journey from darkness to light is the commission, verses 18 and 20. What did Jesus send Paul to do? Let's take a look at it. And he, in verse 18, uses three verbs that are going to describe the mission that he's been commissioned to do. Three verbs that in the Greek are in the infinitive. We'll look at them one by one. First of all, verse 18, to open their eyes. Do you remember what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, if you will eat of this forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened. And exactly the opposite happened because Satan is a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. Their eyes were closed. So that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. The second verb is to turn them from darkness to light, verse 18. Not only are people blind, they are also in darkness. And so while the first part of the solution is to take the scales off their eyes, the, the second part is to actually bring light to them. Because it does a blind person no good to open their eyes if there's no light around for him or her to see anyway. And I'd like to explore this metaphor of darkness a little bit more this morning with you. First of all, darkness is dangerous. Now you may have tried to walk in the dark before. I tried to do that the other night in our home. Came back into our bedroom in the dark and bumped into a trunk of clothes that wasn't usually there and stubbed my toe. Now, there wasn't much risk there other than a stubbed toe and my wife finding out the true state of my sanctification. <laughs> but when we talk about spiritual darkness, we're not talking about stubbing toes. When I was in junior high school in Pakistan, where I grew up, we went on a camping trip one weekend and we camped in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains. And we had climbed over a 10,000 foot peak and had about another hour to walk to get to where we were going to be camping. And we had left late and were behind schedule and pretty soon it started to get dark and back then we all didn't have a flashlight each and so we had maybe five or six flashlights for 25 of us. So I'm trying to look at the light of the guy, three people in front of me and walking on this little narrow path in the mountains. And suddenly we heard a bang and a thump and a roll and one of the girls had gone off the edge. Well, we shined the lights down, we went down and she was leaning up against a tree there and we, we got her. She was okay, she hadn't broken any bones, so we helped her get back up. We walked onto our campsite, set up, and the next morning we walked back to that bend in the path and we looked down and that tree that had stopped her fall was on the edge of a cliff. My friends, darkness is dangerous. As verse 18 says, when we're in darkness, we're in the dominion of Satan. This is not a game. 
And if we stay in darkness, we're going to end up where Satan ends up, in the lake of fire, eternal death. But secondly, darkness has degrees to it. I've learned a lot about light in the last couple of weeks getting ready for this sermon, and I've learned that darkness technically isn't a thing. Only light is a thing. And darkness is simply the absence of light. So when you try to define darkness, in fact, somebody has made a scale of how dark a night sky is. Somebody named Bortle has a nine numeric scale that will tell you how dark a night is. But you know that even when you've been outside at night, even if there's no moon, there's still plenty of light. To get really dark, if you went inside your house at night and shut the doors, that would be very dark. But even then, after a little while, you'd see some light seeping under the door and you'd, you'd be able to find your way around. Where do you have to go to get the deepest darkness in our world? In a cave, yeah, and many of you have been there. If you go down deep into a cave, it is absolutely, completely pitch dark. There is zero light there. It's so dark that you can feel it. It's so dark that you can't see the fingers right in front of your face. And it's so dark that they say you, you might not even know if your eyes are open or closed because you can't tell the difference. And I wonder if there's a way to gauge spiritual darkness around the world. If we were to look at physical darkness, this is what our world looks like at night from a satellite. This is where the lighted places of the world are at night. And that's pretty objective. We can figure that out. But I wonder, could we do the same thing spiritually? Can we find out where the light is in the world and where it is not? I think we can. And it's actually not a very complicated question. Think about it this way. If Jesus is the light of the world, then wherever Jesus is, the light is, right? I mean, even our kids can understand that. And you go, yeah, but Jesus is everywhere, so there's light everywhere. Well, that's true in one sense, but the revelation of salvation through Jesus is only available where his word is and where his people are. Because where his people go, he goes inside of them and the light goes there with them. And so if we can find out where his word is and where his people are in this world, we can find out where the dark places of the world are. You see, there's a difference between light that is ignored, light that is rejected, and light that is absent. And we sometimes confuse those. People that ignore the light at least have the option of walking in it. People that reject the light have seen it and have, saying, have said, I don't want that. In fact, in our study in John that we're in, we're, we've seen in chapter 1 that Jesus is the light of the world. And in John 3, Jesus is going to say that people have seen the light and they've rejected it because their deeds are evil. There are people who don't want to come into the light because it's going to expose the things that they are doing. But they have the light. Is there a place in the world where there is no light? Well, that would be the place in the world where there are no Christians where there is no Bible. You see, the darkness in one sense is the same all over the world. Satan has the entire world wrapped in darkness. He has people in North Africa wrapped in the darkness of Islam. He has people of India and Nepal captured in the darkness of Hinduism. He has people in Southeast Asia captured in the darkness of Buddhism. He has people in Europe and North America captured in the darkness of materialism and secularism and agnosticism. 
It's dark everywhere in the world, but there is not equal light. Where are the Christians in the world? That's an important question. Because God is commissioning Saul now, named Paul, to go into those dark parts of the world where there is no light. I have a video I want you to see that might help us understand this a little bit more. Where are the dark places in our world today? In the beginning, God created everything. He created a world full of people to know Him and to be known by Him. This is the story of the Bible, God bringing people to Himself. And when we read the Bible, we see how God went to great lengths to do this and how much God cares about people knowing Him. You most likely already know this. And you probably live somewhere where people have a general understanding of this great love story between God and humanity. And if they don't know yet, there's probably somebody in town who can tell them. But did you also know that there are three billion people who will live and die without ever hearing this story? Not because they don't care, but because they don't have a choice. Nobody ever told them that once upon a time, God became a human just like them, so that he could teach them how to know their creator. 40% of the world doesn't know this, and they won't know this. Not unless something changes. Not unless someone goes to tell them. Jesus is our wonderful example. He left his natural home to come to us, and then he tells us to do the same thing. Because we love Jesus and care about the same things that he cares about, we care about this. That the whole world would know him. That every tongue, tribe, and people group would come and be able to worship him. So the question is, are we doing this? Going out into the world to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation? Well, kind of. While churches do send people out, almost half the world still doesn't have any access to the gospel. But how is this possible? Aren't there people being sent? Well, yeah. There are about 400,000 people serving across the world today. But only 3% of them are actually going to the 40% who have never heard about Jesus. The other 97%, they're going to places that have already heard about Jesus. There's an imbalance. That imbalance leaves only one person for each 250,000 people who have never heard about Jesus. Put another way, we have a spirit-led calling to rethink our focus. When you look at how we use our resources, such as money, the picture doesn't look that much better. To be specific, Christians around the world are giving about 2% of their income to Christian causes. And less than 7% of that is going to cross-cultural workers. And of that cross-cultural giving, only 1 one-hundredth of that 0.1% is actually going to those working with the 3 billion people who don't know Jesus, have no church, or any Christian neighbors. The other 99% of all cross-cultural giving goes to the rest of the world that already has Christians, Bibles, and churches. Are you seeing the imbalance? Only 3% of our workers with only 1% of our cross-cultural finances are going to the 3 billion people who have never heard about Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with this? We want those 3 billion people to hear about the kingdom of God and how much God loves them. There are 17,000 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. People who share language, culture, and common history. 7,000 of them are considered unreached people groups. These are entire cultures who have never heard the amazing story of how Jesus loves them and came to save them. God has called us to pay attention to this, to love and care for the same things that he does. He put this desire on our heart. To see the unreached, reached with the amazing story of the love of God. 
We want to see lasting local church planning movements begin among these people groups. That brings renewal and transformation among these cultures and societies. Why? Because God has moved our hearts to see the gospel transform whole societies among the unreached. We know this task is bigger than us. Many of the areas that are in need of the gospel are difficult and resistant places. It isn't something that can be accomplished overnight, but by the power of the Spirit, we endeavor to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that God can be worshiped by all peoples. So where are the dark parts of our world? It was in that video, and here's a map that helps me see very clearly. This is a spiritual picture of where the Christians are in the world. The red parts have less than 2% evangelical. We're just simply measuring where the Christians are in the world. And that video said one of the reasons why three billion people are still in the red parts of the world is that we haven't taken this job seriously enough. We haven't understood that there are degrees of darkness and that we need to prioritize people that live in the red parts of the world. And that's what we're trying to do here at College Park. That's why we talk about unreached peoples all the time. Because we're trying to get the light from where it is into the darkness where it isn't. Now I'm not sure that you guys totally have that yet. You think you do? Let's try an experiment just for a minute. And ju just for about 60 seconds, I'd like to ask you not to move around. Just stay where you are. And we're going to turn off the lights and let you experience darkness here at College Park Church. Not total, but you would, probably wouldn't want to walk around right now, would you? You might bump into something or fall. Now, in this dark world, where are the Christians? Okay, you guys represent all of the born-again believers in our world today. Now, we don't have a full sanctuary, but imagine that the sanctuary is full. You guys would be the Christians. The rest of the world would be in what? In darkness. And why are they in darkness? Is there any darkness where you guys are? Yeah, there's some shadows under the seats. There's some things that probably could be cleaned up. But compared to the darkness there, it's not nearly as bad. And so what's the solution? Some of you guys need to get up and move into the darkness. You need to take the light that you have in Jesus, and thanks, you can bring the lights back on, and you need to move it to the dark corners of the world, or you need to help somebody to get to the dark parts of the world. And that's what... God was commissioning Saul to do. He said, I want you to leave from Antioch and I want you to go into the ends of the earth where Christ has not been named and I want you to bring my light there. And that brings us to the third great truth of darkness is that darkness is dispelled when the light is shined. There is an answer to the problem of darkness and it is simply to turn on the light. Isaiah 9, 2 says, those walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And do you remember who that was? A few verses later, it says, it was that son who was to be born and the child who was to be given. Jesus has come into the world to dispel the darkness. And the message about him is the way that they see the light. Look at verse 23 of our chapter 26 of Acts. This is the message, this is what the content of the light must be that the Christ must suffer and by implication die and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
Darkness is dispelled when we bring the message of Jesus' death and resurrection to people in darkness. And then the third verb happens. This is a complicated point, I realize. If you're tracking with the notes, you might be lost by now. Our three verbs were to open their eyes, to bring them into light from darkness. And then the third verb is also in verse 18, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. You see, what happens when we proclaim the message of Jesus and when people repent and bring fruit in keeping with their repentance, they receive this wonderful gift of forgiveness of sins. See, it is our sins that are our problem all along. Our sins have identified us with Satan and with the dominion of darkness, and they hold us fast there. But when the message is preached and when people repent and turn to Jesus and have their sins washed away, they are transferred from the dominion of darkness and they're brought into the kingdom of the Son of Light, whom the Father loves. That's how God intends it to work. He has a solution. The way to dispel the darkness is to bring the message of Jesus. And how does he do that? That brings us to the third element of the journey from darkness to light. First, who's the commissioner? It's Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Second, what is the commission? It is to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. But part and parcel of that now is our third point, not just the commissioner, the commission, but now the commissioned, verses 16, 17, and 19. What is the solution to get light from here into the dark recesses of the world? It's right here in verse 17. I am Jesus, he says, whom you are persecuting, then verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. The commissioner is sending Paul from where he is to go to the Gentiles. He's sending him from this area where there is light to go into areas where there is not light. Now I've sometimes wondered why God didn't just reveal himself to every single person like he did to Saul. And he could do that. Even today, he could reveal himself to all 7.7 billion people individually. And he is doing that once in a while in a few places around the world, but that's not his main plan. His main plan is what he outlined here, is to send Saul, send Paul to be his witness. There was a cobbler in England in the latter part of the 18th century named William Carey. And he had a map of the world on his wall and he had a burden for the people in darkness in India. And so he went to the elders of his church and he said, I'd like you to send me to India to take the light of Jesus there. And do you know what one of the elders told him? He said, young man, sit down. When God chooses to save the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. You see, for almost 1700 years, that's what the Protestant church thought. They thought that if God wants to save the nations, he can go ahead and do that. And he will do that with or without us. But they hadn't read their Bible very well. They hadn't read Acts 26. God uses means for the conversion of the heathen. And so William Carey actually got so exercised about this that he wrote a little booklet. And it has a title that we wouldn't use today because it wouldn't sell very well. It's too long. But he says, an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. God has a plan to convert the heathen, and the plan is to use you and me as his light. And as the commission, there are three characteristics of us in this text that we need to understand. First of all, we are servants, verse 16. 
But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. We in our Western, democratic, egalitarian society do not understand this word at all, and it creates a problem for us. This word originally referred to an under rower in one of those big ocean-going ships. Remember, you've seen in the movies those guys that are chained to benches and they're just tugging away on the oars and somebody's cracking a whip over them to make them pull hard. That, my friend, is what a servant is. Do they have any input in their assignment? None at all. And what the commissioner is saying to, to Saul, now called Paul, he's saying, I've made you my servant. I'm the one in charge of this. I just want you to obey. He didn't ask for Paul's opinion, his approval or his acceptance. He just said, you are my servant. And it's interesting, when you read the account of this story in Acts chapter 22, Saul just asks two questions of Jesus. When he first sees him, he says, who are you, Lord? And then when he sees the commissioner, his second question is very simple and straightforward. He says, what shall I do, Lord? See, he understands that somebody in the presence of God who made the heavens and the earth doesn't question but just obeys and asks this question, what do you want me to do, Lord? Secondly, we are witnesses, again in verse 16, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. What does a witness do? A witness just talks about what they've seen and what they've experienced. Jesus says, Paul, now I've appeared to you, and I'm going to continue to appear and give you revelations. And I want you just to be a witness of me wherever you go. If you do not have yet an experience with Jesus, then you have no witness. You have no commission. You're off the hook. You've got nothing to share except your own opinion. But if you have experienced the light of Jesus in your life, then he is appointing you as a witness to talk to other people about what he has done for you. And it's interesting, the Greek word used here for witness is the word martura. You might recognize that word. It's the word we get our English word martyr from. What is the connection between witnessing and being a martyr? Well, it's really easy. People don't like being told that they're wrong. And if you persist in telling them they're wrong, they may lay hands on you. And if you keep telling them they're wrong, they may wipe you off the face of the earth. That's why when God first commissioned Paul, after this experience, he sent him into the city and and there Ananias was told to go to him and Ananias had this message for him. God said, Ananias, tell Saul how much he must suffer for my name. See, this is not an easy job. And those of our missionaries who are here or are listening around the world, you are in a difficult position because you're telling people on the authority of the commissioner that they're wrong. And nobody wants to hear that. And they're not going to like it, and they may respond negatively. And they did to Paul. In fact, he says in verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. God had had to save him many times from those who wanted to kill him. But then he said, now I'm sending you back to them. You see, just because they resist us doesn't mean that we cannot go to them any longer. He rescues us, and then he sends us back to them because we're the only way they're going to see the light. And Paul eventually paid the ultimate price. He knew what it meant to be a witness. And he gave his life for the sake of the gospel according to tradition. This is where we typically tap out. We may say, well, maybe I'll say a word of witness here or there, but 
If it's going to make me uncomfortable, then I'm out. That's for somebody else. You haven't yet understood what it means to be a servant of the Most High God and a witness of what He has done for you. You know what question people most often ask me about our vision trips? I think you know it. You're just probably afraid to say it. Is it safe? (laughs) No, probably not. Because we're going to tell people that they're wrong. We're offering them hope in Jesus and they don't want us to be there and they don't like us to tell them that. But there is no other plan. Now, we've, as long as I've been here, 16 years, we've brought everybody back from vision trips who went on vision trips. So we do try to find relatively safe places for you to go, but even to ask the question is wrong. What you need to do is listen to the commissioner and obey that heavenly vision. And that's the third part, the third element of the commissioned is we must be obedient. Verse 19 Do you notice what he said to King Agrippa? So, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I've done what Jesus told me to do, even at great cost. Notice what Jesus had said to him in verse 16, but rise and stand up on your feet. He said, Paul, now is the time for you to get up and move. And I wonder if some of us today might need a kick in the pants, not because we've fallen down in worship before Jesus, but because we've fallen down on our couch with our remote and we can't get up. God's word to us today is get up and stand on your feet and be obedient to this heavenly vision to go and be a servant and a witness of what Jesus has done for you. And you say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a missionary. That's for somebody else to do. I'm not one of these great apostles. I'm just a regular person. And if that's your answer today, then let me just ask you this question. Is that all that Jesus means to you? That you've gotten your ticket out and you don't care about anybody else? You see, God gave this prophecy of Jesus coming in Isaiah. He said, it is too small a thing for you, Jesus, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. God was saying that he was making Jesus a light to the nations. Well, what happened when Jesus went up to heaven? Jesus is not on this earth anymore in person. How is he here? Well, Paul understood this because he said in Acts 13, 47, on his first missionary journey, for this is what the Lord has commanded whom? Them? The pastors? The elders? No, he says us, the church. What was prophesied about Jesus, that he would be a light to the nations, now applies to the church, those who believe in him. We have been made the light to the nations so that we might bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. And now it's time to get up and stand on our feet and do what he's told us to do. Well, the application today, I've got three questions for you to think about. First is, do you have the light? Maybe you've come today just exploring Christianity and you are still living in darkness. You haven't let Jesus examine the depths of your heart and your conscience. And you're still full of guilt and sin. Jesus would love to be your light today, your salvation. He'd love to transfer you from the dominion of darkness and bring you into this glorious kingdom of his son. There will be some of us at the front afterwards. We'd love to talk you through that process if you're interested in doing that today. Secondly, is your light shining? 
If you have Jesus in you, is he shining out from you? Or are you putting that light under a basket, like Jesus said was not a very smart idea? Now, I will confess to you that I'm not great at this here in America. I, I love to share Christ overseas. I find it harder here, and I've been working at it. And so I swim at the Y in Fishers a couple days a week, and there's this guy that's been swimming, and we usually end up often in the hot tub together. I know it's kind of weird. Uh, after a swim, we're just kind of loosening up, and I've tried to connect with him over two or three years, and you know, finally found out that he's actually from Iran. He emigrated 30 years ago, and um, he's a Muslim, and, but he just wasn't super friendly. So I just kept hanging out, and just whenever we'd be there, I'd try to talk to him. And just a, a week ago, we were in the hot tub together, and he said, hey, are you a judge? I said, what? He said, are you a judge? I said, no, I'm actually a pastor. And he said, so I was pretty close, right? <laughs> Be thankful that you're not a pastor when you go out witnessing. You have no idea what people think about pastors. But you know what that did is that for the first time in two or three years, opened up a door. And I said, you know, we believe in a judge over all that we're all going to have to report to someday. And he said, we believe that too. And I was able to share with him our hope that we have that Jesus is more than a prophet, he is a savior who delivers us from sin. Is your light shining in the world that God has put you in? But finally, how far is your light shining? We weren't able to set this up in our little experiment, but if every single Christian on the face of the earth just glowed as bright as they could and shined as much light as they could, that would be a beautiful thing. But do you know what? Still one-third of the world 2.7 billion people would still remain in darkness. We need to somehow get the light from this corner of the room into the rest of the sanctuary. And you can do that by going, and you can do that by supporting those who do go. But my question to you this morning is, is there a link between your life here in Indianapolis or Carmel and something that's going on in the 1040 window in the dark red parts of the world? There needs to be something or we're never going to finish this task. God is saying to you as his people, I want you to take my light to the ends of the earth. You can go yourself or you can help others go. You can pray that God would use those that he sent ahead of us to bring his light into their darkness. But I'm convinced that you and I will not engage in this commission until we really first feel the darkness. Now, why do I say that? Because this is what happened to me. I was in college. God had persuaded me that I should be a missionary. I was going to do it. But God did something before my senior year of college that transformed me. This is hard because my parents are here and they saw this process. But I had gone back and I was doing an independent study for my anthropology major at Wheaton College. And I was studying the folk religion of people in northern Pakistan, these illiterate, poor villagers. And I was going around to various shrines and holy men and, and finding out what they really believed about religion. And one particular shrine had a holy man there, and there was a long line of women that were coming to him with their problems. Oh, did they have problems. They were sick and couldn't get better. They couldn't get pregnant, or their child was sick or failing in school. And one after another, they poured out their hearts to this man because they thought he was closer to God than they were. And God did something in my heart that day and he broke me for the darkness. 
And I gave my life to telling the world that there is only one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus, the light of the world. This, this is not me, this is what God has done, but my challenge for you is if you have not felt the darkness, you're not gonna get involved. And this is one of the reasons we have vision trips, is we want God to open our eyes to the darkness that is in this world. We need to feel it, but finally, we need to see the light afresh. We need to see Jesus and all of his glory and the hope that he brings to those who are in bondage. And when we feel the darkness and then fix our eyes on Jesus, then we're going to be his servants. We're going to be his witnesses. We're not going to be disobedient to that heavenly vision that he has for each one of us. We will joyfully do what he's asked us to do. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we are so grateful that you brought light into our dark world. That We sang about that today. You've set us free. And now you commission us to be your light in a dark world. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of your people here, that you would give them their commission, that they would then with joy not be disobedient to that heavenly vision, that they would go and be the light of Jesus both in their world and in the dark parts of our world. To the glory of Jesus' name, we love you, our Savior, and we give ourselves to you. If more of you means less of me, then take all of me. We give ourselves to you to make us a light to the very ends of the earth for the glory of your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.